We invite you now to turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to our New Testament uh, preaching text this morning. You can find it on page uh, 833 of uh, the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you. We're finally uh, at the end of Matthew 26. We finally come to an end of the longest uh, night in Scripture uh, as we have been uh, with Jesus uh, and his uh, disciples that long evening before the sun rises on Good Friday. Our text today is uh, the end of 26, beginning of verse 69, uh, through the first 10 verses of chapter 27. And we come today to one of the saddest sections, I believe, in all of Scripture. Our text is thick with shame Uh, and with regret. For some of us, this passage simply records a fact of history. It's a sad fact of history, uh, but we can generally read it and move on fairly easily. However, for others of us, particularly the death of Judas strikes a chord, a chord of painful memories and painful emotions. We're going to read in a moment that Judas has thoughts about taking his own life. Then he acts on those thoughts. Some of you can relate. You've had those thoughts yourself. Uh, You have loved ones who have had those thoughts. This is not an easy topic. Uh, For some of us, this isn't an easy sermon. If you want to talk about this, uh, we're here. I'm here. We'd love to talk with you about this topic afterwards. We'd love to point you to those who have walked the road before you, uh, those who are trained and uh, ready to help. We can't avoid beginning this text with heavy hearts. But as we go through it this morning, I ask you to remember the words of Psalm 34, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. We're going to begin today in sadness. We're actually going to be there a while in this text. But by God's grace, we will end with hope. We will end with the hope that rests firmly and securely on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Would you follow along with me? Matthew 26, beginning at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we embark on this text and this message uh, this morning with hope in the resurrection of Jesus as we see the beginning of this darkest of days, as we see the despair uh, in the hearts of these men, Lord, I, I pray that each of us would see the hope that you offer. That we would move by the, the message of Jesus, by the proclamation of the empty tomb, from despair to hope, from conviction of sin to the experience of forgiveness. Lord, arrest us, strike us, convict us this day of our very sin. But God, do not leave us there, for we cannot handle handle the bitter tears. Bring us to Christ. Show him to us in his grace and in his glory and gift us hearts to believe and find hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought much about state mottos. You ever thought much about this? Probably not. A lot of blank stares out there. Uh, maybe you drive into a new state and there's a state motto on the sign. And you think, well, that's kind of interesting or that's kind of weird, right? I went back this week and looked up some of the, the state mottos and there's some weird ones out there. Uh, I don't know if any of you are from Montana. Probably not. Uh, but their state motto is gold and silver. That's it. Gold and silver. Texas, they have a state motto, which is one word, friendship. It's kind of weird from the the rebel state, right? The Lone Star State. That's like they don't want to be friends with anybody. I'm a North Carolina boy, so I love our state motto. Some of you know it. It translates into to be rather than to seem. It's better to be someone than to look like or to seem to be someone. Today, though, we're going to look uh, a state further to the south. I know some of you hail from South Carolina. As typical South Carolina, they have two state models. They couldn't pick one, right? Uh, we're going to stick with the, the better one this morning, and it's this. While I breathe, I hope. South Carolina, it's a good motto right there. While I breathe, I hope. Now imagine the place that you're in when you're reduced to all the good things in your life as the next breath, right? Not while I live, not while I earn money, not while I vacation, while I breathe. I hope. That's what I want you to come away from this passage with. 
We can expand it a little bit, make that phrase a little more theological. Maybe it's something like this. No matter how deep your despair, hope in Christ, for he restores you to God. No matter how deep your despair, no matter if you think the only thing in front of me is the next breath, no matter how deep it is, hope in Christ, for he restores us to God. Or, while I breathe, I hope. There's some hope here. It's going to take us a while to get there. We've got to work through these verses. In particular, we're going to see a lot of sin. If you're not used to attending a church that talks a lot about sin, well, you're in for it this morning, okay? <laughs> sin is rebellion against God. Sin is breaking God's holy law. Sin is doing the very things God tells us not to do and not doing the very things that God tells us to do. It's what we do, it's what we say, and it's what we think. We as fallen creatures, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, are sinful people. I'm going to show you you're in good company, you're in company at least, <laughs> this morning in our text. I want to look through all these verses, I want to show you the various flavors of sin. It comes to us in various ways in these verses. And then we're going to step back and we're going to look at the whole picture and see what the pattern of these sin teaches us. First, we've got to look at the various flavors of sin. You remember, maybe some of you are old enough to remember Baskin Robbins, right? 31 flavors, one flavor for every day of the month. Well, we got 31 sins, right? One for every day of the month, maybe 365, right? But today we just have the three. Three different sins against our Lord, each to teach us about our fallen condition and our need of Christ. Number one, Peter's sin, verses 69 to 75, is denial. Peter's sin is denial. All three of these sins we're going to see have been predicted by Jesus. Very recently, all predicted by him, just in uh, chapter 26. Uh, we saw it famously a few weeks ago, verse 34. Uh, Jesus tells Peter, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So here it is. Here is Peter's denial of Jesus. Verse 69, Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard. Courtyard, excuse me. You remember what's happened? Uh, they have taken Jesus to go to this trial, which I don't think is a real legit trial, but they're acting like it is. They have taken Jesus to this Jewish trial at the home of the high priest, Caiaphas. Uh, his house is also called a palace, so it's pretty big. Within it is an open courtyard. And so everyone would come in through a certain gate, and then in a big room is where the trial is taking place. While the trial is taking place, Peter has followed them in, and he's on the outside in the courtyard with other people watching, with some of the guards and soldiers, some of the servants. They're there. We know there's a fire going on, right, to warm themselves. That's not here, but that's in another passage. And there Peter has these various encounters as he's waiting. First, a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. A couple thoughts here. Uh, number one, you will note the dynamic between the person bringing the question and Peter himself. Uh, you have heard before the dynamic between men and women in the ancient Near East. 
uh, right? And who had sort of uh, an extra level of authority and respect and power? It was men. And so the dynamic between a man and a woman, Peter is in the place of sort of the stronger position, we might say. Peter is uh, older. She's called a servant girl. Peter is free. She is enslaved. Right? Any sort of worldly power dynamic here, she has no right or authority over Peter. He does. And yet, here when she comes to him, just her and him, other people are watching, but it's just sort of this one-on-one conversation. He responds to her, I do not know what you mean. And she's been pretty clear. It's Jesus, the, the guy that's in the room right there. The one who's been up around the Sea of Galilee ministering these past few years. That Jesus and Peter does what we do when we get caught doing something we're not supposed to. He plays dumb, right? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to that cookie, right? I don't know what happened to the last piece of cake. I didn't touch your leftover. I don't know what you mean. Peter is sort of trying to, I mean, he's denying, but he's sort of deferring the actual question. He's getting, that, getting out of it as fast as he can. His denial, if we're to rank the denials in order here, it's fairly mild. Right? He certainly had the opportunity to answer her correctly, he sort of plays dumb, denying he knows and is with Jesus, but sort of in the most mild of ways. But he knows what's up, because as soon as he says these words, he kind of goes to the back, so they won't see him again. Right? You notice verse 71, he went out to the entrance. Right? So, man, people recognize me, I'm going to go hide out in the shadows a little bit. I'm going to get away from the fire, away from the crowd. Maybe they won't see me back there, but... Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders about him. So the first time the girl speaks directly to him, now a second girl says something about him, but he hears what she's saying. It's a lot easier right, to sort of come clean when it's just one other person in private, right? But somebody's right there talking about me in front of me. Well, Peter ramps up his denial. Look what he says. For a second time, not, I don't know what you mean. Verse 72, he denied it with an oath. So he adds sort of a level of seriousness, of supposed trustworthiness by adding an oath to his denial. And then he doesn't say, I don't know what you mean. He says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. After a little while, The bystanders themselves came up and said to Jesus, now it's the crowd, right? Now they're all coming up to him all together. Certainly, they say to him, you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. We know where you're from based on your accent. Then he responds, if you're taking notes, the first denial has one exclamation point. The second denial has two exclamation points. The third denial has three exclamation points, right? He, what does he do? He invokes a curse on himself. That means if I'm lying, I be cursed because he is convincing them he's telling them the truth. He swears it, number two, and he says, thirdly, I do not know the man. You see how they're getting stronger and stronger. As the night goes on, or rather at this point it's the morning, as the morning goes on, the threat against him 
sort of one girl, one girl and bystanders, all the bystanders, appears to get more and more, and his denial is worse and worse. He's digging deeper and deeper. You know that saying, he dug and he hit rock bottom and somebody threw him a shovel, right? I mean, Peter's just digging himself into a grave. Now, what do we make of Peter? We've seen him before. He's kind of impulsive, right? We know he, he can kind of speak before he thinks. He's got a lot of time to think. This keeps happening. This isn't really impulsive answer. Peter is not really kind of the weak, scaredy-cat guy. He's the guy that drew the sword to fight the soldier. He's the guy that walked out on the water. He's the guy that in the face of danger is the first one to step up and be brave. He's the one who said to Jesus, I won't deny you. But he is leading with his own strength and his own courage. He's actually following Jesus into this courtyard. The other guys aren't here, but Peter's here. So he's not... He didn't get kind of woken up in bed while he was hiding to ask what he thinks about Jesus. No, he's, he's right there with him, trying to follow him and, and be with him. And yet, when this threat comes, he caves. Think about the threat for a second. Surely this is not a physical threat. The servant girl does not have any authority to arrest Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, to arrest or Jesus or Peter, right? She, she can't do anything to him. She can't threaten him. Seems like Peter is maybe more scared of not what they will do to him, but what they will think about him. I mean, do you see sort of the clues here? And all three times they spoke to him, they said, first, you were with Jesus, the Galilean, right? The one from up there, right? Sort of the, the rural county up north, right? Or the city folk. You're from kind of the, the country bumpkins up there around Galilee, aren't you? I mean, I, I know we've got folks that drive into here from Madison County, and I'm so glad you come here from Madison County, right? I love Madison County folk. Bring some more, right? You're good people. We want you here. You can see the dynamic, though, between the city folk and the country folk, right? Like you're the guy from up there. Not only up there, from Nazareth. What do you know about Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? Oh, you're the guy that comes from the place that nothing good comes from? Oh, that's you? Yeah. And then finally, your accent betrays you. Whew. They know how to poke at Peter, don't they? One author says, Peter is paralyzed by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. The fear of man. It's not what's the servant girl going to do to me. What is she going to think about me? Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, says this of the fear of man. The fear of man lays a snare. Lays a snare. And Peter has stepped right into that trap. It has got him by the leg. The fear of man lays a snare. And we must look at Peter and take heed lest we fall. We can say... In a worship service, we could say we're about a bunch of Christians. Oh, I'm never going to deny Jesus. I will never be unfaithful. But if, if we are not aware of the workings that the fear of man can have on us, the ways that we can fall in the face of temptation, even subtle temptation, this is the same guy that drew the sword to fight in the courageous moment against the soldier. This guy can't even say he knows Jesus to a servant girl. 
Peter's failed before he even began. Peter failed way back when Jesus told him, you will deny me, and he said, I won't. (laughs) Peter sort of knows one sort of enemy and one sort of strength. And when that fails, he's got nothing. The night that Jesus prayed that he would face his own temptation, he tells Peter to pray with him as he faces his temptation. And what does Peter do? He falls asleep three times. He falls asleep. He's unprepared for the moment of testing, for the moment of trial. His fear of man leads him to deny his very Savior. Peter's sin is to deny Jesus. That's not the only sin in these verses. The second sin we see listed out and named for us comes from the priests in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27, and their sin is to deliver Jesus. They will deliver him. This whole chapter began with Peter, with Jesus telling his disciples that they are plotting together to arrest him and kill him. Jesus is going to be delivered. And here it is uh, before our eyes. Finally, the sun has come up. You see, chapter 27 begins that way. Sun's come up on Friday, and now their deliberations and their accusations uh, can be made official. Now that the sun's up, uh, they all can make the official vote to put Jesus to death. Verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The word deliver pops up five or six times in chapter 26 and 27. And there are three stages in which Jesus is delivered. Stage one, he is delivered by Judas into the hands of the Sanhedrin, or the leaders, the Jewish leaders. Stage two, he is delivered, same word, from the Jewish leaders uh, to Pilate and the Roman authorities. And then stage three, he will be delivered, we'll see this next week, from the Roman authorities, from Pilate, he is delivered to be crucified. Three different steps, all the same word, three different people, three different groups delivering Jesus over. The first is the betrayal of a friend. The final one is a betrayal of, of civil justice and righteousness as the Pilate gives an innocent man over to be killed. Here, In verse 2 is Jesus' own people. The very ones he came to save. The very people from whom he came to come as their Messiah. They reject him and deliver him over. We'll read in Acts when Stephen, one of the early deacons, is preaching right before he's martyred, right before he's put to death. And he will deliver this long sermon. And at the very end of the sermon, he will look at the the chief priest and the rulers. And he will say to them, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one. That's their deliverance of Jesus into the hands of their very own enemies, the Romans. But neither of these compare to the third and final flavor of sin we have in this text. And that is Judas's sin, his sin of betrayal. Again, this is a sin that has been predicted uh, a couple times. Most recently in chapter 26, uh, verse 25, when Jesus looks directly at Judas and says to him, you have said so, you will be the one uh, to betray me. Now something happens in verse 3. Judas, his betrayer, 
saw that Jesus was condemned, and he changed his mind. Changed his mind. Now, what, what, what did Judas expect was going to happen? Some people think that Judas was loyal to Jesus and he wanted Jesus to take the sword and bring in the kingdom and defeat the Romans now. And he was tired of Jesus being so slow and talking about death and suffering that he just pokes the bear, right, that is the leaders in the hopes that Jesus would pull the sword and fight them back. I think that's giving Judas way too much credit. (laughs) Some people think that Judas thought Jesus will just be arrested and sort of once the, the festival is over, they can kind of send him out of town and kind of move on and it's not the Messiah. We can kind of go back home. And that Judas was shocked uh, when he saw that he was actually going to be condemned uh, unto death. Again, I think that's reading too much into the text. I think Judas was struck in a moment by the weight of what he had done. You've had that before. Maybe you have this vain this, this sort of faint thought, I've done something wrong, or maybe that wasn't right. Then you see it. And it's right there before your eyes. And all of a sudden, your, your heart strikes you. Judas changed his mind, the verse says. That word can mean remorse. The word can mean Regret. But what it doesn't mean, where it's used in the New Testament, is repentance. Judas is remorseful, he is regretful, he feels bad, he changes his mind, he tries to make the wrong, the right, but what he has not done is repent. Judas experiences some level of conviction, verse 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago that trial proves not his guilt, it proves his innocence. Judas has seen the result of the trial and he is struck by this idea that no, he has condemned innocent blood. I think he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people say, Amen. Cursed be the one that takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. He is overcome He tries to return the silver. They won't take it. He throws it into the temple. Verse 5 ends. He departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now Matthew doesn't leave us there. Uh, Matthew takes us and this is an odd rabbit trail to go down as we're awaiting the crucifixion of Jesus. But he takes us into this account about how the chief priest use the blood money, in essence. Now, they have this rule, apparently, that they can't have blood money go in the treasury. It's not lawful, so they have to do something else with it. So they buy a a potter's field. They're going to use it as a a burial place for strangers and foreigners. Do you see the irony here? They're so worried about this financial record-keeping category, right? That that, That expense can't go in that line item of the budget. That would be wrong. While they have put to death the only innocent man to walk the face of the earth. Talk about neglecting the weightier things of the law. Matthew tells us this, though, to set us up for verse 9, which is his final use of the word fulfill. We saw this a lot back at the beginning of Matthew, if you can remember back that far. (laughs) He used that word a lot in chapter 2. 
He uses it throughout the book. And here's the last time, because whatever's going on here with Judas and his return of the money uh, and this death and this curse seemingly is a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, I don't have time to go down this. Uh, it, I was confused with me forever this week to try to understand what's going on. Because he literally says what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and then the quote here doesn't come from Jeremiah, right? it comes from Zechariah. So there's, there's something going on here that Matthew is pointing us to, and he's pulling these threads from a theme that happens in Jeremiah uh, of, of a shepherd rejected by the people, a scripture that is spoken by Zechariah, another theme that comes from a different place of Jeremiah, Uh, about sort of blood money and throwing it back in the temple. And Matthew is bringing these different threads together to show us that God, Scripture has planted this picture, that God sends shepherds to his people. His people reject those shepherds. And in their rejection, they value God's shepherd with the same valuation as a slave. And I think the reason Matthew brings this back at the end of this section on everybody's failure and everybody's sin is to show us that it's not just right here in this moment. This is now generational. This is a fulfillment of multiple different themes of Scripture, multiple different prophecies that point to the fact that everyone is guilty. Everyone is indicted. God's people have rejected God's Messiah. Whether the sin is denial, whether it's delivering, whether it's betrayal, whether it's all three. We have in these verses the truth that sin comes in all shapes and sizes. Sin comes in what we do and what we don't do. Sin comes in what we think, and what we say, and how we feel, and what we do. We sin by what we have done. We sin by what we have left undone. This is an illustration of the truth that Paul will put later in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everyone in these verses, everyone before that painted the picture of what was to come in the denial of Jesus. Really, these verses read sort of like Genesis chapter 4. As we go east of Eden, as Adam and Eve and their children are kicked out of the garden, the world is infected and full of sin and we have death. We have hatred, we have lies, we have denial. It plagues all of humanity for years and generations and centuries and on and on and on. And this is just another picture of it. And whether you see yourself exactly in one of these accounts or you see yourself in all of them, the truth is the truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In one sense, The section ends with the description of Peter weeping bitterly. There's really no hope yet in these verses. It's just despair. But that's because the book's not over yet. That's because there's more pages to come. And I want to walk you through in our final couple minutes what this pattern of sin can teach us. What this cycle can show us about finding hope even in the midst of despair. I want us to follow and learn to follow uh, these sinners in order to get to Jesus. So let me show you the uniform uh, pattern of sin. Uh, Finally, the uniform pattern of sin. 
four steps in this cycle. The first one is the word I've used more than any other this morning, sin. The first step in this pattern, the first step in this cycle that leads us to hope is sin. I hope by now I don't have to convince you of it. I hope I don't have to tell you to do it. I'm not trying to tell you to sin. Recognizing where we all are. We are sinners and we live in a world of sin. And this tells us that no matter all these different types of sin, there's something particular in common here. And that's blindness. Did you notice everybody seems blind to their own sin? Everybody seems unaware of their own sinful nature, of their own sinful condition. Peter had multiple opportunities to realize what he had done and make it right. Time passed between denial one and denial two, and he did nothing. More time passed between denial two and denial three, and he did nothing. Judas had all night, had days beforehand, plotting to betray Jesus. He sat with him at the meal. He kissed him in the garden. Here he comes and sees him at trial, and it's not until he's finally condemned. Judas seems blind throughout to his own sin. The chief priests are totally unaware. You've heard of a a whirlpool in water, right? Maybe if you've spent much time on rivers, you know the idea of an eddy. An eddy is this part in the river and the current uh, where the current gets sort of turned around in circles because of the land or a log or some rocks or something, and the eddy doesn't go anywhere. And the water in this part of the river is just stagnant, and it just circles and circles and circles. And logs can get stuck in there. Uh, Your boat or your canoe, right, can get stuck uh, in this eddy. We have this eddy of sin in these verses. They're just stuck. They're just in this world of sin, and there's no breaking them out of it. And there's no hope. It's just going to eventually go into a downward spiral unto death. What hope comes to those in the whirlpool of sin? Second step in this pattern is that of conviction. The conviction of God's Holy Spirit. By conviction, I mean simply this. God sends a message to us. And it tells us that we are doing something wrong. We are doing something sinful. How does God's message of conviction come? All shapes and sizes, right? For Peter, it's the sound of a rooster. That's it. That's enough to recall God's word, what he had already said. We read in Luke that after the rooster crowed through the people and through the courtyard and the indoor room, Jesus looked at Peter. And Peter is struck in a moment. No conviction for hours and then a rooster crows. And he knows and he remembers and he weeps. Judas should have known over and over again what was going to happen to Jesus, but it wasn't until he saw him Condemned, that sight of his friend, his former friend, condemned, struck him, that conviction of what he had done wrong. Do you know when this comes? Do you know these two moments of conviction come right as the sun comes up? John plays on this a lot in his gospel, this imagery of light and darkness. I think Matthew is alluding to it here. That in the, the sin sort of thrives in the darkness. But as the sun comes up, the sight of condemnation, the sound of the rooster crying as the sun comes up brings conviction. Conviction is that light shining into the darkness. 
It is that shimmer, it is that ray of light that shows us the sinfulness, the darkness of our own hearts. How do we respond when conviction comes? What do we do in that moment of light, in that moment of guilt, in that moment of shame, in that moment of awareness? There's two examples here. One example is ignoring it. The other example is embracing it. And if we want to go from sin to hope, we need to learn how to embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Look at the ones who ignore it. Chapter 27, verse 4. Judas brings this news to the priest that Jesus is innocent. And he gives them the opportunity to make it right. And they say back to him, into verse 4, what is that to us? Or maybe we could translate it, we don't care. Here is the, right in front of their face. They will be guilty of condemning an innocent man, and they say, in essence, what is that to us? Here is the warning. We can grow, if we're not careful, just as callous as these priests. We can grow to the point where God brings the, 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 the truth of our sinful thoughts, words, and actions into our lives, and we can turn a blind eye to it. We can ignore it. We can be so hardened by it, that word of conviction just bounces off and goes somewhere else. Maybe we hear it for a moment. Maybe there's this faint feeling of guilt, but we just keep on moving. These priests don't get to the final end of hope because they just they don't even get to conviction. They're just, they, they get off that exit ramp right away. They want nothing to do with it. Peter and Judas, in their different ways, embrace the pain of the conviction of sin. And it's painful. We want to move away from conviction because conviction of sin is not fun. When we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I can't believe I said that to her. I can't believe I did that to him. I can't believe I hurt them like that. That's painful. And it's easy to say, well, it's her fault. I mean, she made me say it. Uh, He brought it out of me. It was just this, right? To go down this path is painful. It leads to the third place in the cycle, and that is the place of despair. And that's where we leave Peter, and that's where we leave Judas, is in despair. Because if we embrace conviction, it may very well lead us to despair. Peter wept bitterly. Judas is so angry, he flings the silver into the temple, and he takes his own life. John Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, called this the slough of despond. Or in our modern English, the swamp of despair. This feeling of the conviction of sin and the weight of what I have done wrong, bitterly weeping as if we are stuck in a swamp of despair. He says this of the swamp, the descent where the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin does continually run. The swamp of despair is is. Not solid ground because we are sinking continually in the conviction of our own sin. Bitter tears. In that place 
of despair and that place of grief when we are finally confronted with our own sin. There's really two types of grief there. There is what the Apostle Paul calls worldly grief. Worldly grief that just leads and produces death. Uh, that thought that what I've done is sort of wrong, but I, I'm not confessing sin against anyone or, uh, or in front of anyone. I'm not asking for forgiveness. It just makes me feel bad. And I just sort of live in this place, in this swamp of despair and worldly grief. Or, Paul says, there's another type. There's godly grief. Godly sorrow that produces repentance and leads to life. You see, we have a choice that we make when we find ourselves in the swamp of despair. We either stay there and we wallow in it, or we turn and we trust in Christ. Because when we come face to face with our own sinfulness, it is a despairing picture. And when we see it face to face, we know it's a swamp that we can never come out of. It is a bog out of which we can never lift ourselves. David found himself there, King David, after his sin, and he prays in Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, out of the depths of despair. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you kept seeing me as the sinner that I am, nobody can stand before you. But... With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, if we get off at the off-ramp of conviction, we're just calloused and hard, and we never see our own sin. The danger, though, is to we go into the valley of despair and we never come back out. We just live in a world of self-recrimination and self-pity and guilt and shame and despair, and we don't follow the, the next step, the path of repentance and life, of turning from sin unto God. The final step is the missing step of this entire section, and that is hope. Do you see how they're all missing hope? Even Peter, who will eventually be restored, went out and wept bitterly. Now, why is there no hope? You know, they don't have the cross yet. They haven't seen the cross yet. They certainly haven't seen the empty tomb yet. They are living this side of that image and picture of hope. They know the promise, but they haven't yet seen it play out before their eyes as we have. The hope that we have when we despair. The hope that we have when we are mounted up under the weight of our own guilt And shame. That missing piece for them is there for us. The promise that Jesus has died to cleanse you of all your sin. That he breaks the power that death and sin hold over us. That the stain that causes us guilt and shame over and over for the same sins over and over again, he has cleansed us of that. That his blood is sufficient upon the cross to cover and cleanse all of our sin. And that his resurrection from the dead is victory for him and for us. 
the proclamation that we indeed are clean. We indeed are restored to God. I wonder where you are in the cycle today. I know you're in sin because you're a sinner like me. Have you experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit lately? Well, rooster crow, the sight of what you've done wrong, the recollection of the Word of God. Are you remaining tender to the prick of the conscience of the Holy Spirit, or are you growing more and more calloused to sin? Or maybe you are convicted, and maybe that's where you're stuck. That's all you can think about. That's all you can dwell on is how bad you are. This is the complaint about churches like ours that talk a lot about sin as they make people feel really bad about themselves. Let me advise you to feel bad about yourselves and then stop and look to Jesus. Look away from yourself. Look away from your sin because he doesn't see it anymore. Because if you look at yourself in despair and your own sin, you're believing a lie because that's not how God sees you. God sees his children through the blood of the Lamb, and He wants us to have this hope. That while we breathe, we have hope. Or let me say that a different way. While Jesus breathes, we hope. Dear friends, your Savior lives, and He breathes. And no matter how deep the despair, we can always hope in Him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray in two ways today. We pray that in this word and in this text that you would afflict the comfortable among us. That you would afflict those like these priests who did wrong and continued to do wrong. I pray, O God, you would show us as in a mirror our own sin and our own need for Christ. I pray that you would use whatever means to break through the calloused nature of our hearts and reveal the very sin that lies so closely. But Lord, I also pray that as you afflict the comfortable and sin, that you would comfort the afflicted. I pray for those who are despairing. I pray for those who think their sin is too bad. Those who think if the rest of this room just knew their words or their thoughts, there'd be no hope and there'd only be judgment. Lord, I pray for those who are weighed down by their own shame and their own guilt. And we pray that the power and sufficiency of your blood would be made ever more real to us today. That you would comfort your people in the hope of the resurrected life of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, we pray these things.